riddle for you this morning. Uh, it's actually a very old riddle, and it goes like this. What, when broken, can never be repaired, not even by strong or wise individuals? What, when broken, can never be repaired, not even by strong or wise individuals? Any guesses? Pardon me? You're all wrong. What is it? No. You guys are very spiritual. I like that. You know, there was a nursery rhyme created from that riddle, this very ancient riddle, and it goes something like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty together again. Now, uh, regardless of the fact when we ask the question, what was Mr. Dumpty sitting up on the wall when he's such fragile state, we'll ignore that for the moment. But that was the riddle out of which that nursery rhyme was built. All your guesses were very good, by the way, and I probably set you up on that. But probably that is one of the first nursery rhymes uh, children learn, and it is an ancient nursery rhyme. And according to people who study such things in the English language, uh, this piece of wisdom is hundreds of years old and actually appears in eight ancient European language groups. Uh, in its primitive stages, though, uh, Humpty Dumpty was the answer to that riddle. And so it was a teaching uh, effort on the part of parents to teach their children. But the answer, of course, is an egg. An egg is what, when broken, can never be repaired, not even by strong or wise individuals. Regardless of how hard we try, when you break an egg, uh, we just clean up the mess as best we can, or we live with the mess, and we learn to live that way. Isn't it that, that true? When we think of Scripture, we think of number of broken eggs throughout the history of God's Word. We think of Adam and Eve right off the bat eating the forbidden fruit and uh, what we call the Great Fall. Uh, they possessed, they claimed to possess the necessary information and knowledge that God had to be like God. But when the dust settles, Adam and Eve are no longer ensconced in a beautiful garden, but they're in the thistle patch east of Eden. We think of God's prophet Jonah, probably one of my favorite prophets, by the way. Born with the sin nature, he flees an everywhere present God. That is always amazing in the book of Jonah. He knows God is all-knowing and everywhere present, and yet he tries to run from him. Have you ever been there? I know I have. He claims to know better uh, than God does for his archenemies, the Ninevites, if you remember that, recall that story. But yet when the stormy sea ceases and uh, Jonah finds himself in the belly of this great fish and eventually to be thrown up on the coast, and uh, then he decides, hey, it might be better just to follow God's plan. Uh, we think of King David, you know, what an amazing poet, what an amazing warrior, what an amazing thinker, and yet after his sin with Bathsheba, uh, he denies that and denies that, and yet he is a broken egg, and it takes some nine months to a year before Nathan the prophet finally confronts him and says, thou art the man, and he realizes in his brokenness, and of course, King David deserved by Israel, Israelite law, by the biblical law, to be stoned, even as a king, for his sin with Bathsheba and for murder of her husband Uriah. And yet God, in his mercy and grace, uh, turned that situation around, and yet uh, David had to live with that his whole life. We think of the Apostle Peter. 
vowing never to forsake his Messiah, never to forsake or deny Jesus Christ. And yet, on the very night of the crucifixion, the trials, uh, Peter finds himself denying the Lord Jesus Christ three times and denying that he knew him, broken and fallen, standing there in the smoke of that campfire with this little servant girl accusing him of being with the Messiah, and he denies it, another broken egg in biblical history. The reality is, is all of us are fallen, all of us are broken, and uh, today I just was thinking, uh, this past week, thinking about the issue of broken things, and we Westerners, we Americans especially, don't really care for broken stuff. I know I tend to be a fixer, you know, if somebody breaks something, I want to fix it. That's uh, just the way I'm bent, I guess, and yet uh, we're all broken in that sense. Our fallenness, uh, as described clear back in the book of Genesis and on through Scripture, in fact, the Bible, the doctrine is called the total depravity of, of, of people, of human beings. And we don't like that very much because deep down we like to think that basically we're good and there's something in us that is acceptable before God. In fact, if you go back to the early, early America in the 16 and 1700s and you read the sermons by <coughs> John, Jonathan Edwards and George White Whitfield and others, uh, you'll find that they always really emphasize the doctrine of the depravity of man. It wasn't until about the 1850s, 1830s, that that started to change, and popular preachers of the day uh, denied such a doctrine and said, you're all really okay, and uh, all you need to do is just decide for Jesus. And so they put in mechanisms which would help people make an emotional response to Jesus Christ. So, uh, But yet the Bible teaches us that our fallenness, our condition, is evident in all the things that don't work anymore. I've been told, and I've read, that uh, the most perfect machine that has ever been built is the space shuttle, 99.99% perfect. And yet we know what happens when that 0.01% is not perfect, don't we? In a couple of instances, we know that, don't we? And so uh, mankind lives uh, with this brokenness, and our lives seem uh, very much out of control many times, uh, I don't know, the older I get, maybe I'm uh, getting towards that age where I can't take change anymore, but it seems like change takes is going at such a speed that I can't keep up. You know, I can't keep up with the latest computer stuff or the smartphone stuff, and, and uh, it seems like uh, there's just a brokenness, and, and there's an impatience perhaps on our parts and an anger, pridefulness, bitterness mark our existence. We see that perhaps in ourselves, in our families, in our friends. Uh, in our community we live in. And so broken eggs are really an appropriate metaphor uh, for our fallen sinful condition. And as one writer said, wherever we step, we hear the crunch of fragile shells beneath our feet. And uh, to be aware of that, I want to encourage you to be aware of that is a good thing. Because in the direct proportion that we are aware of our own brokenness on one hand is the only way that we're able to understand the great goodness, grace, and mercy of God on the other hand. And so this is hopefully an encouragement to you. Uh, we have inherited our brokenness from our father Adam. Uh, the Bible teaches us that for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so when we hear the eggshells crunching beneath our feet, when life is not working out the way we expected, when we... Uh, are broken in spirit because of that reoccurring sin that perhaps plagues you, plagues our lives. Uh, we're brokenhearted over failing relationships. Perhaps it's a marriage. Perhaps 
it's a, a child who's gone wayward, perhaps, uh, you know, we could name a number of situations where that would be the case, or a health problem, uh, someone's failure to fulfill their responsibility, a betrayal by a friend, we can go on and on, and we feel the severe brokenness of what this life is about, and there is a heart sickness over broken plans and broken relationships for sure, and life just doesn't seem to turn out, does it, the way we want it to. Uh, we're brokenhearted. We're like these fragile eggshells. Today, <clears throat> if you're in that place today, uh, you could probably really identify with King David in Psalm 69 in verse 20 where he writes, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. I looked for comforters, but I found none. Solomon, his son, in the book of Proverbs, writes uh, as one of the wisest men in the world, a joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. I sense that Solomon had a lot of experience with this, even though his life was full of such material goods. He wrote in chapter 17, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Chapter 18, a spirit of man can endure his sickness, but a broken spirit, who can bear? You know, we Americans don't like broken things. Uh, you know, some of us men like to keep broken stuff around because you never know where you're going to need parts, right? And so we store that stuff. But yet the reality is when it comes time to clean house, clean stuff out, uh, we tend to throw the broken stuff away. And uh, we don't like broken things, especially broken lives. And uh, so sometimes we lack compassion of those that we would consider less fortunate than us. And, uh, but in this world, despised things are, broken things are despised and thrown out. Whatever we don't need anymore, we, you know, we have a disposable society pretty much, and damaged goods are rejected, and that sometimes includes other people. Uh, the tendency is to walk away from relationships that are difficult, and to find somebody new rather than to work at re reconciliation. You know, per people leave churches many times in that situation where they refuse to deal with reconciliation. And what they're doing, they're exposing their own brokenness, really, in order not to deal with that. The world is full of broken hearts, broken spirits, and broken relationships. But I've been thinking about what does the Bible say about broken things? And what I have discovered in Scripture is there are things that are of infinite value that are broken. And God has so designed it that way that uh, contrary to Thomas Harris's popular book from the last century, you may have read it, I'm Okay, You're Okay. Uh, it was one of the best sellers of self-help books uh, of the past decades. But uh, he says, I'm okay, you're okay. But I say, and I think scripture will back me up, I'm not okay, and you're not okay, but that's okay. And we're going to see why this morning as we go. First of all, take your uh, leather-covered Bibles or your Kindles, as one person said, or your smartphone, and find Judges chapter 7. Judges, well, Judges, we'll start in Judges 6. We'll go rather quickly through this. I'm uh, probably assuming that you know uh, most of these accounts in Scripture. But uh, the first thing we're going to see is that uh, among four things today, there are many other things in Scripture. If you do a word study of the term brokenness, uh, take your Strong's Concordance and look at broke or brokenness and look in the Hebrew and look in the Greek, and you can do a trace through Scripture 
uh, what God does with broken things. But uh, basically, I've picked out four this morning, which will take us up uh, to the Lord's table this morning. Uh, but in Judges chapter 6 and 7, we're going to see that there are some broken pitchers, broken pottery, uh, broken things that reveal light of God's victory. You may remember the story. Remember in Judges, Israel is in spiritual declension, a downward spiral. They leave uh, their God of uh, Israel and they worship other gods and they're in spiritual declension. God judges them and then they repent and they cry out for God's help and he brings them a judge. And here it's Gideon. Uh, You may be familiar with Gideon, but in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the Kitekites were to the east, what we would call Arabia today, and they punished Israel. God used them to punish them, and there was overwhelming opposition. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of the Bible called The Message, he records uh, Judges 6, verses 3 through 6 this way. When Israel planted its crops, Midian and Amalek and the Easterners would invade the camp in their fields and destroy their crops all the way down to Gaza. They left nothing for them to live on, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. Bringing their cattle and their tents, they came in and took over like an invasion of locusts. And their camels were past counting. They marched in and devastated the country, and the people of Israel were reduced to grinding poverty by Midian and cried out to God for help. Uh, the Midianites, it says their camels were innumerable. Those, those were the Abrams tanks of the day. That was the battle weapon that was so fearsome when they would come across in hordes on these camels. In Judges chapter 7, verse 12, again, it kind of repeats the same thing. Midian and Amalek, all the Easterners, were spread out on the plain like a swarm of locusts. What a picture If you've ever seen a locust invasion, uh, like in the Middle East where it comes in, or perhaps you've experienced one somewhere, and it just strips the fields of everything. I read uh, a book about the Dust Bowl of the 1930s and how locusts would come in and just strip every green thing down in Oklahoma panhandle and North Texas and Kansas, and it was just horrific to watch, and there was nothing they could do. And so these Midianites were like this plague of locusts, And all their camels, they were past counting like grains of sand on the seashore, Judges 7.12 tells us. And so God had raised up Gideon to lead the people. And he gathered an army together. And it tells us that he had a pretty big army to try to fight off the Midianites. And God would use him. And yet God said, "Uh, you have too many men. Doesn't that sound strange to our ears? You know, we would think the more the better. And yet there's diminishing resources. Look at chapter 7. Verses 3 through 6, or verse 2 there. Uh, The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. Now therefore come and proclaim to the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Can you imagine? You know, you're out there, you've got your battle gear on, and uh, uh, probably three-quarters of these guys leave. And we think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. But this is in God's plan and his plan. And yet, there's still too many. And if you remember the story, it finally gets down to 300 is all that's left to fight this swarming locust of Midianites and Amalekites. 
and diminishing resources. And uh, oftentimes in life, I think we come to the point where we recognize there is a, a great adversity in our life and we don't have the resources to face it or match it, or we don't think we do. Let me put it that way. And then uh, God uses brokenness to declare and show his victory. In verse 16 of chapter 7, very quickly here, in verse 16, he says, He divided uh, the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of them and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look to me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you shall also blow the trumpet all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon, verse 19. And so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, and they had just posted the middle watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pictures that were in their hands, and the three companies blew the trumpets, broke the pictures, and they held their torches in their left hands, and the trumpets in their right hands for, blow, for blowing and cried, the sword of the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran away, crying as they fled. What a sight. What a picture. What really impresses me is we go out to battle, and you've got a trumpet and a torch with a pitcher over it. I don't see any room to hold a sword or any kind of a weapon. This is all about God, and they smash that pitcher. And I thought about the poor potters who threw all of those pit pots. If you're familiar with throwing pots, uh, you know it's a little bit of work, and then to fire it and get it set up, and then they're going to break all of your artwork there. Uh, our good friend over in Montana, uh, we went to high school together, college together. Uh, his name's Mike. He was the best man at our wedding, and uh, he became a studio potter. He threw pots, and so I know a little bit about throwing pots. I know enough to know that I don't like getting my hands in the clay. But uh, he was a very good studio potter. But it was interesting, after every firing, if a pot didn't meet his specifications for excellence, he would smash it and throw it away, even though from my perspective it looked pretty nice. And yet he did not want that to be represent his work. And here... Uh, God uses these shattered ceramic pottery things, these pitchers, to reveal the light. And in God's plan shows a great victory that Gideon gained through the power of God and through God's plan. And all of us, I think, have uh, those pitchers in our lives which concealing the light, uh, whatever that may be, you know, what is Jesus Christ doing in our life and do others know about that? And sometimes we need to shatter the pottery. We need to recognize that whatever it is that's holding us back in our spiritual growth, because God can use brokenness to reveal his light through our lives. Secondly, and by the way, unbroken clay pots in that Gideon's day would never have revealed the light and uh, would never have gained this victory. So this obedience by Gideon and the 300 to do something that seems so strange, I'm sure even to them. Uh, secondly, if you take your copy of Scripture and turn to Matthew chapter 14, very familiar passage, obviously, and uh, we're going to look at broken bread, not only broken pottery, but broken bread. Uh, in chapter 14, we know that uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Actually, it was probably more like uh, twelve to 15,000 because they only counted the men who were there, not the wives and the children or the women and children, but 
uh, broken bread really represents Christ's compassion as we look at this. In chapter 14, verse 13, uh, now when Jesus heard about John, and if we look back in the context, John the baptizer has been beheaded. He's been martyred. And look at Jesus' response. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went ashore, he saw the large crowd and noticed what he felt. He felt compassion for them, and he healed their sick. Great compassion follows great sorrow. Even though uh, God's plan was for John the baptizer uh, to be martyred at this point, uh, yet Jesus withdrew, and yet then he saw these crowds who followed him looking for the answers, looking for things. Uh, Jesus felt great compassion. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have, oh, please don't say it, we have only, only, look at that word, we have only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. He ordered the people to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves, the two fish, and looking upward towards heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied, and then they picked up the leftover, the surplus in baskets. Jesus Christ felt compassion after this great sorrow, and yet he broke the bread. He distributed it. Again, in chapter 15, we see it again. Uh, in the feeding of the 4,000 in verses 32 through 38. And he says, he called the disciples to him, I feel compassion for the people. Again, this word compassion, because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I don't want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy a large crowd? Wait a minute, where were you before when we fed the 5,000? And, uh, <clears throat> and Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. At least they didn't say only seven, okay? <laughs> At least they had learned that much of it. And so great compassion resulted in ample supply. And he broke the bread again and distributed it. And there was surplus. There's a breaking here. Broken bread represents his compassion. If the bread had never been broken, there never would have been a distribution and so there's a brokenness here. The third one we find is in Mark chapter 14, another familiar account. Mark chapter 14 about the broken box releases a fragrance of worship. In Mark chapter 14, we see this account before Jesus' betrayal, before his arrest, before the last Passover uh, but we see this uh, death plot occurring in verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there may be a riot of the people. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, let's stop there for a minute. Jesus Christ with the broken person, Simon the leper. Now remember, leprosy was the the disease of the century, then the disease of the times in which people were unclean and they would not have social contact with those who were healthy. 
And yet Jesus Christ, we see in his ministry, he would touch lepers, he healed lepers. And here he's with Simon the leper, probably one of the lepers that was healed before. And he's reclining at the table and there came this woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. She broke the vial or she shattered it and poured it over his head. And of course the response was some indignancy. We know that it's probably Judas primarily remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted for this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were all scolding her, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed for me. For you have always had the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. (coughs) Excuse me. Truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is preached in the whole world, What this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. During this final week, this woman's action of breaking this alabaster jar, a very expensive sum of estimated, probably worth a year's worth of income in that day and age. Jesus uh, is foreshadowing the anointing uh, at his death and his burial, and yet it was this act of worship. And out of brokenness comes this worship. Out of brokenness comes blessing. And broken alabaster boxes would never release a fragrance of worship and everlasting blessing. And she broke this box. And so uh, a a broken pitcher reveals the light of God's victory. Broken bread represents Christ's compassion. This broken box released a fragrance of worship. Uh, I'm told, I've not been there, but if you go to Watsonville, California, some of you may be familiar with that, there's a creek uh, that runs near there that has a strange Spanish name. It's called Salsa Puedas, Salsa Puedas. And uh, Carlos can correct me if I need correcting here. But uh, uh, it basically means get out of it if you can. Get out of it if you can. The creek is lined with quicksand, and the story goes that uh, many years when it was still Spanish California, a Mexican laborer fell into the creek, into the quicksand, and a Spaniard who was riding by on a horse saw his plight and yelled out, Salsa Poetas, get out of it if you can. Uh, actually, not very helpful considering the circumstances, would it? He could have at least thrown him a rope. Uh, but since then, uh, the creek has been named ever since that name. And, uh, but that's our tendency with sinful brokenness, to get ourselves out of this mess. Get out of it if you can, to try to make things right. But God has another plan for us, the broken one, Jesus, our Savior. The broken body redeems all who believe. That's the fourth brokenness we see in Scripture. In his brokenness, he provided healing. Isaiah 53 tells us that, uh, but it was our sin that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment that made us whole. Through his bruises, we are healed. We are like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has pitied all of our, piled all of our sins, everything we've done wrong on him. Uh, the brokenness is not a physical brokenness because none of Christ's bones were broken, uh, but that emotional, spiritually crushing experience of what Jesus did. In Psalm 34, the, uh, basically the prophecy that This Messiah would not have broken bones. All his bones, not one of them will be broken. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. 
Remember, the Romans would break the legs of those being crucified to hasten their deaths. And when they came to Jesus to break his legs, they saw that he had already expired, and so they did not do that. And that was in fulfillment of this prophecy out of the Old Testament. But yet, uh, Christ, uh, when he crawls out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is deep water. And I am convinced personally that we will not fully understand the spiritual separation from God the Father until we get to heaven. And even then, it may take an eternity for us to even comprehend and grasp what actually went on there spiritually and emotionally for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage Wes read for us this morning. And we come to this passage as we come to the Lord's table, and I'll invite the men who are going to help serve if they would come up and be seated at this time. And we saw as uh, Wes read this passage that there was brokenness that is very personal. And uh, Psalm 34, 18 tells us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You may be brokenhearted today or have experienced brokenhearted. I appreciated Dr. Dennis Ahern in one of our sessions when he was here over our missions weekend, when he explained what grief really is. We think of grief as when we uh, mourn the death of a loved one, and yet grief goes bigger and beyond that. Grief is about loss. It is about loss. And uh, I think all of us have experienced some loss in our lives, not necessarily the death of a loved one, but a loss of some type from perhaps way back for some of us, And uh, we still grieve that because it is about loss. And yet Jesus Christ is the one who is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. There is something about reaching the breaking point. You know, there's something about uh, the bitterness or the bittersweet idea of broken individuals that cause us to seek the Lord more sincerely. It's that contrast between knowing how broken we are and how great God's mercy and grace really is. And that's why we're here, to remember who and what he is. King David, remember, in his brokenness in Psalm 51, where he's confessing before the nation Israel his sin with Bathsheba, and basically his sin before God. He cries out to God, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You know, there are some things in each one of our lives. uh, That's why the sanctification process being saved from the very power of sin is a lifelong process that God is faithful in. But he wants to see us broken in some of these things. There are some things that need to be broken. Perhaps it's pride, self-will, stubbornness, sinful habits. Uh, When we feel our brokenness, God compensates. He knows this. Isaiah 57 says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. You know, if Jesus Christ would have never invaded this planet, never dealt with the brokenness of the world, we would be hopeless and helpless in the face of that. Oscar Wilde wrote, How else but through a broken heart may the Lord Christ enter in? And that tells us this broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Our broken nature is reflected in Scripture. The Bible teaches it. And uh, the sooner we grasp that and understand it, 
the sooner we grasp and start to get a grip on what God's grace and mercy is in our lives that we so desperately need. Even though we're all like uh, Humpty Dumpty, shattered and crushed in our sin, there is one who is magnificently taking us towards restoration and completeness, our loving Father, our Creator, our Savior. He is long-suffering. He is forgiving. He is perfect and kind. He loves you and gently guides you into truth to his heart. And that's what we celebrate and observe today is what Jesus Christ did for you and I. Uh, He was broken in the sense of crushed spiritually and emotionally with the sins of the world piled upon him. Upon his shoulders he carried them and he paid the penalty for your sin and my sin. And so if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we partake of the bread and the cup, these everyday symbols really that Jesus Christ took from that last Passover supper from the first Lord's Supper And he applied new meaning because he was the fulfillment of the longing of Israel who had observed the Passover for centuries. And now they came and Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, was the fulfillment of all of that longing of Israel. And when we go through life, we long for things to be right, don't we? We long for things to be fixed, that there's no injustice, that there's no questions, that we want everything perfect. And our tendency perhaps is to isolate and try to control our little environment. And yet the reality is is, uh, we hear the crunch of the eggshells under our feet every day if we are attuned to that. And so this morning we are a partake of the Lord's table together, the bread and the cup. In this passage that Wes read for us, we see that this is a central passage of instructions to the local church. One of the ordinances that God instituted that the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would participate together. And uh, Paul tells us he received these instructions from the Lord. And uh, Jesus uh, gives us instruction that uh, he gave thanks, he distributed the bread, and then they partook. And so I'm going to ask Greg Hewitt to give thanks for the bread this morning. 